in the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where this Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out. And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the time of King Herod, tick-tock, tick-tock. What time is it? It's Herod's time. Herod was king of the Jews. And how did he get to be such? Was his father king? Did he inherit the throne? No. No, he was named king by the Roman Senate and ruled Jewish Palestine as a puppet of Rome. You see, this is how things worked back then. Rome had found a formula, a way to control a province that was more effective than military force. It was called the Roman system of benefaction. They would appoint these vassal kings to act as intermediaries between Rome and the Jewish people. These vassal kings would get significant benefits in terms of wealth, prestige, and power. And all that was required in return was complete loyalty to Rome. All of this was referred to with the Latin term quid pro quo. Caesar did something for Herod, Herod did something for Caesar, and that was the way it worked. The whole imperial system was held together by gifts, where everything was a transaction within an obligation. And Herod was good at it. He was wealthy 
politically savvy, extremely loyal to Rome. He was connected and knew how to network. He levied heavy taxes on the citizens in order to maintain his own power and lifestyle, making him hated by most of the Jews. And because of this, he feared uprisings throughout his reign. He was constantly paranoid, even of his own family. No one was going to steal his throne. And when he was sick later in the years, his, his fears only increased. And with these fears, he became crueler, executing his own wife and at least two of his sons. Needless to say, he wasn't much of a family man. <laughs> he trusted no one, and no one trusted him. This was the time of King Herod. Tick-tock, tick-tock. And then, an interruption. An interruption so slight, so small, so ordinary, that it's easy to overlook. That's the way God often works. God often works through interruptions. And this interruption comes in the form of a baby. Now, I don't know about you, but the birth of a baby as an interruption is a bit of a letdown. I mean, the birth of a baby lacks that John Wayne, here comes the Calvary drama. I mean, babies, after all, are not a rare commodity. I mean, Google it, I did. 10,687 babies are born every day in the U.S., 4 million a year. And if we're talking about interrupting King Herod, our baby's not ready. It can't talk. It can't walk. It can't really give you much. In the time of King Herod, a baby. And then, hold on, here comes another interruption. The baby's birth has echoed outside of Herod's jurisdiction, out beyond Rome's system. And, and here they come, this caravan snaking its way into Herod's time, telling Herod, time's up. Here they come, they're speaking in tongues. Who are they? They're, they're magi. Mag what? I, I don't know, maybe they're astronomers, maybe they're astrologers, maybe they're priests, maybe they're kings, maybe they're magicians, I don't know. Despite how well-known these biblical characters are in our modern world, we actually don't know much about them. We don't know their names or where they came from. We don't know how long it took them to get to Bethlehem or how old Jesus was when they got there. We don't know if there were three or 30 of them. There's a lot we don't know. One thing we do know for sure, their kind is a new character in the story. Matthew never suggests that they were kings, just as he never suggested there were only three. And though the word magi in Matthew is often translated as wise men, 
Later in the New Testament, the same word is translated as sorcerers. Magi, the the Greek word, is, is where we get the word magic. Maybe it's not quite Dumbledore and Gandalf and Merlin, but imagine if you like. They're the type of people who studied the mysteries in the sky and and attributed meaning to them. I like to think that they probably did have long beards and wild hair. And the Magi are, are only in the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, Matthew doesn't have a manger scene. And yet year after year after year, there they are, in every creche on a church lawn or in a living room, standing there all stiff and innocent and respectable, as if they fit in, as if they're supposed to be there, as if they're not flaming pagans, intruding upon the birth scene of this little Jewish family. I don't know what they're doing in our manger scene. I don't know how they got there, but I like it. I mean, what's an epiphany, if not something that changes your perspective? Something where your habitual modes of seeing are transformed. Still, it's surprising that Matthew has these characters featured so prominently in the opening chapters of his gospel. These magicians, shamans, sorcerers. Not Mary or Joseph or Anyone even remotely in the family are the ones who speak the first human words in this gospel. Matthew doesn't give us shepherds. He doesn't give us a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. He mentions that Jesus is born practically in passing and shoots right to this wizardly entourage, sweeping into Jerusalem months later asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Somebody say king? Using the title king on anyone but himself spooks King Herod. And a spooked Herod is a dangerous king. And the whole of Jerusalem is on red alert. A new king would mean that that Herod would have to give up what he had gained and worked so hard for. The birth of the Christ child, the king of the Jews, meant that It was the death of Herod's time. Christ's birth was his death. He wouldn't be able to run his own kingdom anymore. He wouldn't be able to run his own life anymore. He'd have to give up his throne and follow the agenda of Jesus. In other words, Herod's time would have to die. Tick, tock. So Herod, threatened by this newborn king, assembles all the chief priests and scribes to see if they might help him figure out what's going on, to see if there's anything at all in the Jewish scriptures that might mention this. And naturally, they don't find a whole lot of astrology, but they do find somewhere that a Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And if you think about it a little, Matthew is, is setting up this fairly scandalous scenario in the opening chapters of his gospel. On the one hand, you have the political leaders of God's people, King Herod, 
and together with the religious leaders the, of the Holy Scriptures, really everything that represents the established order of orthodoxy. Then on the other hand, you have these foreign pagan outsiders with their astrological charts and crystal balls and tarot cards, whatever. Herod ends up conspiring to have this baby killed. And, and while I'm not surprised about Herod's hostility, what is surprising, however, is the apparent indifference of the chief priests and the scribes. I mean, you think they would have been overjoyed at the fulfillment of the prophecy they all knew so well. You think they would have leapt at the chance to join the wise men on the last leg of their journey. But no. Apparently, they just go right back to their books. As William Sloan Coffin once said, many learned religious people prefer their faith under glass, in vitro rather than in vivo. The scripture-loving religious leaders, they don't recognize him. They never recognize him in the whole story. But the outside pagan sorcerers who get their information from the stars recognize Christ from afar and come to worship him? How? And, and, and isn't Jesus' birth supposed to be good news for the whole world? Yeah. But I get why they're grieving, too. Because here's the truth. The birth of Jesus is the death of the status quo. The birth of this Christ child turns the world upside down. And turning the world upside down makes those on top mighty angry. In his poem, The Journey of the Magi, T.S. Eliot writes with the voice of one of the wise men who remembers the journey. He says, all this was a long time ago. I remember and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this, where we led all that way for birth or death. There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods, I should be glad of another death. This poem suggests that when the life and light of Christ is born into the world, it means the death of the world as we know it. The death of our world and, and our way of being and living. It was bitter agony for Herod who wanted to clutch to himself as God. It was foolishness to the chief priests and the scribes. The birth of Jesus is a beginning, but it's also an end, our end as well. 
As Howard Thurman put it, all around us worlds are dying and new worlds are being born. There have always been different responses to the birth of Jesus. Some, like Herod, will choose to be hostile to Christ. Others, like the chief priests and the scribes, will choose to be indifferent to him. But there's another way. The way of these wild pagan shaman sorcerers. Like I said, we don't know much about them, but what we do know, one of the only details included in this story is that the Magi go searching for God. They were watching and waiting for something to shift. The smallest change in the vast expanse of darkness. And then it happens. We're not quite sure what happens exactly. They, they see a star and they read the prophecies. And whether the light was burning in the sky or in their hearts, it didn't matter much. The point was, something beyond them was calling them. And it was a tug that they had been waiting for their whole lives. And perhaps it's here. Not in who they are or where they came from, but instead in the seeking itself that we find meaning. Perhaps, especially at the start of a new year, you and I are searching for meaning in our lives. We want to know where we're going and why. I mean, everyone in this story is searching for meaning. Herod, who desperately clung to meaning through power and influence. The religious leaders who sought meaning through knowledge. And then finally, there are these wise men who left their power behind, left what they knew in order to set out on a journey that seems dark and foreboding, the end of which they could not control and did not know. And each step of this journey had to feel like little deaths. First, they had to die to what they know. Because you see, at one point, they, they took their eyes off the star and, that was guiding them, and they found themselves in Jerusalem, not Bethlehem. Because naturally, a palace is where one expects to find a new king, they thought. It was only when they died to their assumptions about where power and glory reside that they were able to get back on the right path. They also had to die to their assumptions of how power worked. When they arrived at the place where Jesus was, they realized pretty quickly that this system of quid pro quo, tit for tat, this system of transactional gratitude that ran the world in the time of King Herod would no longer work where they were going. Because what could a child offer in return? This child, it can't threaten, can't even speak. And yet this child holds every promise, every hope we've ever had, 
every pain we've ever suffered, every dream and kindness we have ever offered. And so they give these gifts because they wanted to give them. There was no expectation in return. They weren't asking him to answer a prayer or give direction for their lives or help them win the lottery. They, they searched for Jesus in order to worship him. They didn't try to hold on to their past or their possessions or their pedigree. They were glad for their spiritual death because it meant that this was the death of Herod's time and the birth of gospel time. To quote Walter Brueggemann, this is a time when the old reliances have failed, when autonomous, arrogant ways of life and many manifestations have been shown to be empty. This is the moment to live out an alternative. We have that alternative. Incarnate joy has entered the world and their joy overflowed into giving these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, no strings attached. Gifts, as one commentator notes, that represent the tools of the trade, and thus giving them was a sign of giving up their past way of living for a new way of living. They were no longer at ease in the old dispensation. Everything old had passed away to quote 2 Corinthians, and everything had become new. They offered their livelihood. They offered themselves. They had nothing to lose, but everything to gain. On that day, they died. But on that day, they lived. Now, what about you? The truth is, wherever you find yourself on the journey, people are searching, longing, looking for something to fill the void. Some of us believe that if we can just regain enough power, political power, personal power, then we'll find our sense of purpose. Others believe that if we somehow have enough of the right knowledge, the right theology, the right answers, then our lives will have meaning. There are still others who think we need to go back to some nostalgic time when things were great. Maybe it's relationships, children, work, accolades, something to fill the void. But in our deepest hearts, we know that they can't. To borrow a quote from religious historian Lee Schmidt, our society is full of restless souls. I wonder who or what are you searching for? I don't know. But I do know this question is not unique. This is, in fact, the question that all humanity has been asking forever. What is the meaning of my life? Where do I go next? And I wonder if we could take the example, not of Herod or the scribes or the 
high priests who preferred to fall back on what they knew, but of the wise men who stepped into that inky black darkness and trusted that the light which leads them might also transform them. They'd been warned in a dream to steer clear of Herod, but it wouldn't have mattered. Their old maps no longer worked anymore. They'd been changed and must find a new way home. We're nearing the end of Christmas time, but the beginning of a new year, an end that is a beginning. The birth of the Christ child is a beginning and an end, an end to Herod's time, and the beginning of gospel time. His birth is our death, but as the poem declared, I should be glad for another death. Why? Because you'll recognize that in your search for a purpose, you'll find it in the per person of Jesus Christ. He might not be in the form you expect, but he is everything you need. Your search will lead you to Bethlehem's manger where we receive nourishment for our restless souls. This Christ child born in Bethlehem, literally the house of bread, in a manger, a feed box for animals, is the bread of life for the world. Our daily bread, he will quench your thirst and your hunger. Jesus will fill the void in your life as you search for him and you will come face to face with what Frederick Beekner calls the truth beyond all truths, beyond the stars. That to live without him is the real death and that to die with him is the only life. Herod will eventually get his wish they will eventually kill this Jesus. But irony of all ironies, they will write these words over his cross, the King of the Jews, and he rose from the dead and ascended on high because it is no longer Herod's time. It is God's time, and it is everlasting. You and I, we are seekers in this new year. Seekers for meaning in our lives. We still live in the time of Herod, in a country that's lost hope, with a people who've lost faith in others. We may have even lost faith in ourselves, resigning ourselves to the fact that we are unable to affect change. This story holds out an invitation to us. Do we continue to hang out in Herod's reality? Or will we step out into the unknown? There's nothing certain about what's to come. Nothing we can say about how we'll get there or, or where we'll end up. We can trust that the light of Christ that leads us might also change us and send us home by another road. May it be so.
Amen.